0: Hello, and welcome again to another episode of Five Plain Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to Indigenous artists, creators, musicians, writers, movers and shakers, and culture bearers, people in the community that are doing great things for their communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm Director of Canada, the Native American Programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our Indigenous communities from around the region and country we're going to start our third season in a completely unique manner compared to how we normally run our production. We hosted our first episode of the first season with a live studio audience. Joy Harjo visited the Plains Art Museum yesterday, and we were so lucky to have been able to sit down with her and have a very special conversation. So welcome back to the podcast, and let's jump into our conversation with the 23rd Poet Laureate of the United States, Joy Harjo. Joy Harjo is an internationally renowned performer and writer of the Muscogee Nation. She is serving her second term as a 23rd Poet Laureate of the United States, the author of nine books of poetry, including the highly acclaimed American and American Sunrise, several plays and children's books, and two memoirs, Crazy Brave and Poet Warrior. Her many honors include the Ruth Lilly Prize for Lifetime Achievement from the Poetry Foundation, the Academy of American Poets Wallace Stevens Award, and two NEA fellowships and the Guggenheim Fellowship. As a musician and performer, Harjo has produced seven award-winning music albums, including her newest, I Pray For My Enemies. So if you could please welcome Joy Harjo. (laughs) Thank you. You could introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and where you're from. Okay, I'm um,
1: Joy Harjo. Harjo has many it kind of it's kind of a warrior name but it also means i liked scott momaday's interpretation of uh he calls it brave beyond words and um i was born in tulsa oklahoma the muskogee creek nation reservation and i live there now i knew i would return i've lived i left oklahoma to go to indian boarding school In Santa Fe, New Mexico, in the late '60s, it was not the the kind of boarding school where they went and pulled the children out of their parents' arms. Uh, But it was an there was an experiment in um, it was part of an experiment in Indian education to um, include arts arts uh, instruction they found that the students did really well in the arts. So when I went to IEIA, it was in the late 60s, and it was then a Bureau of Indian Affairs school with our students from eighth grade all the way to two years postgraduate. Now, the Institute of American Indian Arts is a full-blown arts college with two MFA programs, uh, one in creative writing and an MFA program in studio art, which is really exciting. Um, so that's very much a part of who I am. I come from a family of artists, my and speakers. On my father's side, the Muscogee Creek side, my um, I, I have there are tribal a principal. One of my a grandfather, a great grandfather, was close to. Is was, was an interim principal chief, but very um, he was a man that really cared about the community. I like to think maybe I got some of that from him. Because he's still very present in my life, Henry Marcy Harjo. But he was everything from a school superintendent. He was also a preacher. He um, was um, part of the House of Warriors. My grandmother and aunt were painters, and my I was close to my aunt Lois. My grandmother died young of tuberculosis, but my aunt Lois and I were. I knew I wasn't an alien when <laughs> it was with my aunt Lois because. I learned, she taught me so much. I'm still learning. It's funny, all these years later, and she's been gone now probably about 20 years, I realize I'm still learning what she was teaching me. And maybe those learnings go on and they still open up like blossom, you know, and they still are teaching. I think that might be how it works. It's almost like a plant blossoming, and maybe the teaching or the speaking is, you know, it's part of that motivation for that opening, but sometimes it doesn't open within you until much later, when you're my age, thinking, missing them, and then wishing they were missing them, but still feeling their teachings alive within you, so I guess that would be my introduction about who I am. You did leave out the music, and I came out with a new album last March, which with COVID it's hard to get things out and around and called I Pray for My Enemies and, um, I'm working on a new, new music and a play, um, called we were there when jazz was invented. That will show that Southeastern native people are part of the origin story of blues and jazz. And it will be around a young, uh, mostly Muscogee Creek young people band in Tulsa. It will include a story of oil and, um, the character that keeps taking over the story the the protagonist uh, justice fields his mother who is just so potent and powerful and right now she's missing but i have to figure it all out because the manuscript is due in 2 weeks <laughs> yeah. i got to figure it out i've been working on it but i've had to let it go i've been i've been doing the poet laureate work and then the community i'm really excited i part of this cultural education uh, CERC, something, research council for its tribal members. And we've all kind of come together from language, education, artist, and it's kind of interesting to see how it's evolving because ultimately we really want, you know, it's about um, uh, helping, flourishing and, and growing and building, culture building nation building i guess that's what i should say nation building so that's another and i have a lot of children grandchildren great-grandchildren and that's a big part of it mm-hmm. you know in cleaning house <laughs> yeah, yeah. men never say
0: that i noticed notice but yeah. uh, so often in, in our conversations uh we find that um the arts is intertwined with our culture mm-hmm. and it's 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 interesting to see how uh, a lot of the things that that we have created um, have a purpose. Like we we see them in modern eyes with with not artistic aesthetic, but there's purpose and meaning in in all the works that that we do. And I think um, uh, your work includes uh, multiple facets of our culture in the artwork itself. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk? about who are your biggest influences, maybe early on growing up and even today? Well, always
1: your parents. I mean, (laughs) whether the relationship, however that, you know, I mean, they remain. The thing I've learned about, again, thinking about those roots and those flowerings that happen through generations is that my mother still takes over, starts taking over what I'm writing. I forgot to say that through my mother, uh, who was um, European and Cherokee, and that we got uh, music. You know, a lot of music. She loved poetry. She was a, she was really beautiful, and she was um, um, singer, wrote songs, and, and so on. But what was the question again? See, I went sideways. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was about biggest influences. Mm-hmm. So the biggest um, influences, of course, is my mother. It was my father, my Aunt Lois. Um, and that grandfather who was gone before I was born, he was always there which might sound strange and weird but i think if you see time in a different way and we all experience time in a different way there's nothing woo about it it's just everybody dreams everybody knows what love is but they can't touch it i mean you know we we understand when we come here we where do we come from we know that when we go we're you know it doesn't all just begin and end that's kind of that's kind of the thinking of an infant who when they put their head in a blanket they think that nobody can see them, <laughs> so um yeah, so anyway, he was he is, but of course, I wound up. I started out as um from the time I was small, I said I wanted to be an artist, and I liked to paint i was in had work in two art shows when I was in sixth grade, and this poetry thing took over, and so there were big influences there, um my daughter's father, Simon Ortiz, the Akama poet, he was a big influence. I started writing um, because of him. I went, I started listening to a lot of more poetry, and of course my mother, I'd been around poetry with my mother, and got, I was a student at University of New Mexico. We had a very active Native student club, the Kiva Club, and we realized our community wasn't just, it wasn't I guess historically, this, the social, it had been kind of a social club, a gathering place for Native students on campus. But we became um, kind of political central for, there was so much going on. This was in the early 70s. Oh. And so much going on in the surrounding communities that were mostly Navajo or Diné and, and Pueblo and Apache. And so we were involved with for Native Rights for Justice there were a lot of things going on. And as students, we wound up in meetings with coal companies, you know, reporting, uh, listening to the people and trying to help make change however we could. Uh, We wound up in meetings with um, uh, uranium, you know, watching the whole uranium and the mining and, you know, kind of being kind of watchers and, and reporting on what was going on. So I would say my generation there, the Kiva Club was one of my being part of that and being a student at IAIA, which at the, you know was Native students from all over the country coming together, and we were all artists. Artists are bent a certain way. We can't always explain it. It's just what we were given to do. And, and, and um, so both of those, being a, those were huge influences, IAIA, and then the Kiva Club at the University of New Mexico, and that circle, and, you know, who you know, we we stood up, and and uh, that's how my writing started. That's how my poetry started. Was it became a way to speak about what I really couldn't. I, that's how I think of poetry is speaking what words can't speak, and so you try. And poetry is probably the closest that you can come to it.
0: Mm. Uh, going back on that. Um, going back on that. Um, the question about uh, influences—you um, know—a lot of uh, the the work that was done in the early '70s—it seems like the there's a flashpoint today that kind of matches that energy from that time. Um, is that is that something that that you're observing as well? Um, it seems, um, and that, of course, not to discredit the the work people have been doing for decades now, um, but it seems like there's sort of a an uptick in our voices these days, much like uh, in the late '60s, early '70s.
1: Well, there's something about generational weaving. Like, there's the, you know, the people have always known this. Like, the aunts and uncles often function. They're called like brother. You know, aunts and uncles are like mothers and fathers, and they often have that responsibility. You know, the you know, as parent. You know, there's too much pressure on parents just to do things by themselves. Mm-hmm. And then there's this generational weave with, and I can attest to that as a grandparent, you know, between grandparent and grandchild. And so it makes, it makes a kind of weave. I think the mm-hmm. same thing happens with generations. I was thinking about my, when I was writing Crazy Brave, I was thinking about how uh, I'm, ai think it's, I thought it was seven generations, but it's six uh, between me and Manawi, my grandfather who fought against Andrew Jackson in the illegal move, you know, in one, it was, it's considered really the largest uprising against US government was at the Battle of Horseshoe Bin, and he was part of that. And I realized when I was writing, oh, I was thinking seven fit really well, but seven is really the generation, it's like my children and him, between him and them. And uh, so I think about that too. With it's been fifty years since I started publishing poetry in seventy two. My first poems were published. They weren't very good, but that, that they were that was seventy two. It's been fifty years. So if you think fifty years, so I have a new book coming out called Weaving Sundown in a Scarlet Light, fifty poems in fifty years. But I have a lot of notes. Some of them get a little political in the back about the poem when I was writing them and things that were going on. And um, so I do think there's certain resonances. Generations have resonances, or relatives, that a generation overweaves. There's a generational overweave in families, but also, you know, everybody's born into a generation that kind of comes in as a force or a wave force to make change. To make change, and you know, in particular areas. So I think that's probably what we're seeing is something like that because they all have a relationship. Each wave has a different kind of relationship with the other.
0: How? I'm going to jump on to the third question. Uh, it's, a little, it's a little different from the, the path we're on right now. Uh, but how have you developed your career, both in college and post-college?
1: I don't think I was very good at developing a, a career, because <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't really think of what I do as a career. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, if you think of career as a way of making money and making a living and feeding your family, well, I guess so. But you know, what I did didn't always make sense to everybody, and even choices I made. And I got asked to teach. My I first taught at the at I at the. Um, I did teach. When I was a student at Iowa, I went there. I had no money. It was considered the best place in the country, and I, I went there with no money with my kids in a little truck, a tiny little Datsun truck. But a guy, Ray Layall, got me a job teaching in American Studies because um, the creative writing program offered me nothing. They didn't give me any nothing. And I was offered scholarships at Montana, Arizona, fellowships, everything, but I went there because it was the best where it was called the best. And so I taught in American Studies, but I taught using literature. I knew all the writers and everybody that I was teaching, and and that was my first teaching, and, and I really felt out of place. The next place was, I went and taught at IAIA. When it was in that moment, I taught for a year, and then it was, I was caught in this turnover where they were taking the San the All India Pueblo Council was taking back the school and they were moving IAI, which was then in transition to becoming a two year I taught the last high school class there. Mm-hmm. And they um, moved them to um, moved over to that college, a Santa Fe campus. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of chaotic, I think. But I went I taught over it the last year it was on the last year or two it was on mm-hmm. that campus. I love teaching. At, at the institute. I didn't worry, like later I've had other teaching jobs, and the thing is, is I didn't set up an academic career. I don't feel like I'm, I'm an academic. I was asked to teach and said yes when I didn't have any money coming in. But I take it you know, seriously. I'm not going to go in and do a, you know. It, it, what I enjoyed in my last teaching was as Chair of Excellence at University of Tennessee, Knoxville, And I would have stayed there but i needed to get back into my community and we needed to go back and um but what i loved about ia when teaching there is i could just be i didn't have to i could just be but in all i had several jobs and i have stories to tell you would not believe (laughs) and but some wonderful stories too but i would teach for a while and then i would say i'm really too busy I'd give them plenty of notice. I have a good track record, and then I would just work on my own. And then somebody would come and tap me. I've been lucky that way. Tap me on the shoulder, and then I would come in. And um, but teaching it, I I didn't have to. I got into a bad peer. I got into a bad way because I was really getting it. There's a way that I teach and think that is not always like everybody else. I would blindfold my students, take for my writing students, take them places, have them. I had, once I dropped them all off at the bus station, you know, I we did we did other things, which I would do in programs, like I had all the graduate writing students at University of Arizona making face masks out of paper out of um, oh, what is that stuff? They were like life masks. It was kind of freaky as part of a writing assignment. Mm-hmm. But They don't. The academics don't always appreciate that kind of thing, and uh, that kind of over that overlap. But what it all came to a head because I would go teach, and I would just not. I would go into the university and feel like I didn't belong there, and a lot of people let you know that you don't belong there. Others people, well, you can't. The thing I've learned is I can't. I just have to go forward with what I'm given to do. That sounds easy, sometimes it's not. sometimes it's very difficult, but um I remember I was at UCLA and i I was the position was supposed to be it was in English with uh, teaching native native lit and uh, creative writing, and it was supposed to be filled the way I you know there's there are lines, and it was supposed to be polygon Allen had left, and they were supposed to use it well they didn't they wanted to use it for medieval so they had american american indian studies foot the whole bill which was not how it was supposed to be mm-hmm. and then would bring me over so that said they didn't feel you know there was that that went on and then a friend of mine in the english department told me that when my the idea the the discussion came up for my hire they said well somebody said well she was in my office and didn't steal anything And somebody else said, well, who is she? And somebody else said, well, she's just one of those minorities working their way up to, fighting their way up to the system. So I knew that had gone on. Hmm. And I just got really uptight about it. I stopped being me in that system. And it it came to a head when I was sitting in my office after, for a writing class. And I would do the best I could with my my classes. And um, somebody, I heard somebody outside the door, you know, she brought her friend in. Her friend really wanted to meet me because she loved my poetry. And my student said to her friend, you know, I wish she would teach like the way she writes poetry. And that really stung, but it made it, I realized I had to turn it around, that I was turning into something I wasn't. I was trying to be something I wasn't. Sometimes it was painful and it was it really stung but it was exactly what I needed to hear That I needed to to uh, shift And just be me and find the way that I I teach best
0: Your influence as as an educator um, Is far and wide because correct me if I'm wrong but uh, one of your former students is Deb Mm Holland, Secretary of the Interior so uh, I think you've you've had some positive influence. Uh, obviously, she owns her career, but uh, in the paths that you've crossed.
1: Yeah, well, there's a, yeah I've had, I've worked with a lot of students, and I'm still in touch with a lot of them from any a lot of the institutions. But Deb, yeah, I remember always remember Deb walking into my office at the University of New Mexico, uh, carrying her motorcycle helmet. <laughs> And you know why she was carrying? She had a motorcycle to save on fossil fuels. She was a returning student. And um, I let her into my creative writing class and, um, because it, it was already full and people would always drop out or, or not. But I let her into my class. And, and the rest is history. Now, she wound up working for me because I would have an assistant. And so I hired her as my assistant after a while. And we became friends, like family of friends. Um, She's a good writer. She's a good poet. And um, it's that, uh, where was I going with this? She's always just had this purpose, I suppose. And I don't think she always understood it either, except that I know that she went through a lot. I watched her. I watched her as a single mother, you know, go through what single mothers go through. I watched her to make a, she's a good cook. She's a really good cook. She taught me how to make tamales. And um, I watched her, she started a whole company as a student to, um, you know, make red chili and marketed it and got it out into all the stores
0: Mm.
1: while she was going to school and and raising a daughter. Uh, She's a hard worker. That's one thing I can say she she and you can see it in what she does she's a hard, she's a very hard worker mm. and really loves the people that's in loves and loves the earth and and so she's in it for the right reasons she's not in it to grandstand or to you know make a place for herself and uh, she's there be for the she's there because she's that she's that student walking in the door with a motorcycle helmet mm. yeah. uh
0: the question on opportunities and how, how have opportunities presented themselves to you? Um, you know, there's always a difference between early on in our careers or experiences where when we're younger, we seek opportunities, but over time, they start to present themselves to us. And I was wondering if you could talk about that.
1: Well, I think you could see everything as an opportunity. I, when you said that, I started thinking of all the opportunities I missed or wouldn't, I, I didn't stand up to. All the ways I failed. And sometimes when somebody introduces me and goes on and on, and then I'll say, Well, my list of failures is much longer, (laughs) which is true. So, no, I don't think I was very politic. I don't think I've been very politic in my what you call career. Um, And I've seen people really go about it. You know, they really go about it like they're almost like politicians that way. You know they set up. They know who they need to meet, and they go to all the the right places. And I don't. You know, I, got, I went to Iowa. I had to sacrifice a lot to go there because sometimes for me it's it's just what it looks like I need to do, and it doesn't. It feels like it, and I don't always understand it. I mean, I think University of Arizona, a lot of native students. I was offered a teaching fellowship. I was set. I would have been set, and I would have been in a community with a lot of natives. I was offered, um, you know, Richard Hugo was teaching at University of Montana, incredible poet and human being, and uh, who would have been great to study under. And I would have, I you know, that would have fit big native population. Instead, I went to Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> and man, I was so lonely that somebody told me about a powwow up near Detroit, and I thought Detroit is pretty close. Yeah, it was to me compared to, and so, you know, I went (laughs) and then wound up hanging out at Tama Settlement. But, um, so that was, I guess, a kind of opportunity. Sometimes opportunities aren't necessarily easy. I mean, or things will come up, but I don't know. I don't really know how to answer that question really about opportunities because I think, you know, I know I've gotten in my way for some things, because I was short-sighted, or because I let, you know, I let, I let my mind, you know, the the. I didn't stand up or do what I needed to do. What, you know.
0: What would you say to the eighteen or twenty-two year old that is listening to this conversation?
1: Well, it would depend on who they are, except, you know, I don't know about this generation, but all 18, I mean, every 18, 19-year-old is like every 18, 19-year-old in the world. The doors are wide open. Maybe. It depends on what country or, you know, and, and what sex somebody is and, and so on. But in whatever life, you know, you you're really at the top energetically, you have you know, there's an incredible force, creative force that you're riding it. I mean if you think of a life as a trajectory, you're you know, you're writing you're on an upswing. Although it may not feel like it, and I know a lot of young people have been going through a lot about questioning, you know, watching this the insecurity the so many insecurities going on in this country with um these oppositions of people not listening to each other or not making con- not listening common sense and and the pandemic and when will it end and will there just be more and where to, how did it start and um, climate change and the shift where we don't know I don't know how it is up here I just know it's cold right now but and I know it can get colder <laughs> I know this is probably pretty warm relatively warm but um in Oklahoma down in Tulsa like it'll probably be up in the 60s by Thursday or Friday and it's been down it got cold it got down into like 6 7 a few days not too long ago
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that is highly unusual i grew up there you could usually there are our systems or you know even seasonally we could count on certain things happening and now the storms are even different you know, the quality, much much more destructive because of the, I guess, the change in the atmosphere and melting ice caps and so on. So this is, if you're 18 or 19, uh, yeah, this is part of it. But I also believe that we we come into the story, the story is immense. The story of our native people goes way, colonization is just a blip in eternity. That's how I like to think about it, otherwise, I would despair and you know, but I think no, this is this colonization thing because it's hurt everybody. It's not just natives it's it's damage. Look at climate change. it's all part of a system that believes that um certain people should have you know own all the resources instead of saying, if you see resources as relatives and see everybody as you know that there's a relationship it shifts everything. Mm. But I was in the middle of something else. <laughs> Hang on, it'll, it'll come to me. But, yeah, so coming in at this time, I think, well, you know, you took your breath. You know, you you took on breath at this time for a reason. It doesn't mean it'll be easy. And But that's how you grow muscle. And a generation can grow muscle in understanding together. And... So, everybody has a place. Everybody has something to offer. Everybody came in with something to offer. doesn't mean the story will be easy, but that gift of being eight there's a gift of being eighteen or nineteen and I know that you come everybody comes in there's so many questions: Who am i <laughs> uh what am I supposed to do because other people are a lot more directed and then they're trying to figure out well, how am I going to do this? How do I get there um how do I make a living, how do I make money, how do I... Uh, and we're watching a whole sh- shift in this country of um, even something simple as the post office. <laughs> you know? Things that we counted on, this, the simple things we counted on, you cannot count on anymore. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a big shift. And, and do we all want to live inside a computer screen? You know. You don't there's not nourishment. We we're we're we need nourishment not just of our bodies but of our minds and our spirits. And we are earth people, we're part of all of this. Something won't something will not be fit. We will not be whole people if we live constantly on the internet. And there's more, I guess. I won't go on and on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Joy, thank you so much for joining us and spending your time with us. Uh, This has been an absolute pleasure and an honor. So thank you. Thank you. And that does it for this episode of Five Plain Questions. I want to thank Joy Harjo for her time and sharing her story with us. To have someone to to come into our space and to give uh, her time and her story with us, was an extremely special occasion uh, for myself and the staff at the museum. Uh, I, I value everyone and every, all of our guests on the show. And um, I think my admiration for her doesn't take away from anyone that I've spoken with and have been able to share a space with, but I do recognize um, having someone uh, like Joy to, to To show up and to be able to share her experiences and uh, her perspective on things with us is a very special thing, and uh, I'm very honored that she uh, was able to do that with us. And so, for that, um, I thank Joy. I also want to thank her team, Uh, the the people that we worked with to to make this happen, were absolute professionals, and they were so great to work with and so gracious. Um, uh, It was truly a, a great experience working with with her crew. So. Uh, For those of you who work with Joy, uh, thank you so much. And I really enjoyed uh, our conversations and uh, the experience that we had together. I also want to thank uh, our very own Jill Johnson. She's the executive assistant here at the Plains Art Museum, but she also served as technical advisor for this specific program. Uh, She sat in, ran the soundboards for us (laughs) for this episode, and she did an awesome job. So Jill, thank you for stepping up and lending your skills and your time for us as well on this very momentous occasion. I also recognize that we had uh, some friends come in and be a part of our studio audience. And uh, I want to thank you all for being there. Um, If you're listening, uh, thank you. Um, You know who you are. And it really made me smile to see you come in and and join us. It was a very special time for me, uh, especially with you all there. That all being said, more importantly, I want to thank you for joining us and spending your time listening to what I feel is a very important story and perspective from our community. So please, join us next week as we speak with another incredible person. I'm Joe Williams. You can find me at Canada. That's C-A-N-A-A, creativity among Native American artists on Facebook, Instagram, across social media, and also at the plainsart.org website. There you can see our programming, our past videos, and these podcasts. So if you have a suggestion for me for someone to talk to, uh, please reach out to me. I'd really like to hear from you. Well, you take care, and we will see you next week. This has been an 11 Warrior Arts production.